The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe in the gospel, the gospel of the Lord. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. morning, everyone. Let me pray for us. Father, your word is a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. Pray that we would hide it deeply in our heart, that we might not sin against you, but also that we might be renewed in every aspect of our life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Two sermons ago, I mentioned Travis Kelsey and the New York Times article about his carefully curated business plan to become world famous. And then Last sermon, I point out the curious connection between Travis Kelsey's girlfriend's favorite number and the Super Bowl. And of course, who is Travis Kelsey's girlfriend? Taylor Swift. And what is her favorite number? 13. It was a 13-hour flight for her to get from Tokyo to Vegas. The Super Bowl was her 13th NFL game of the year. It was on 211. 2 plus 11 is 13. The Super Bowl was Super Bowl 58. 5 plus 8 is 13. The Chiefs play the 49ers. 4 plus 9 is 13. The Niners were the number one seed in their conference. The Chiefs, the number three in theirs, one one and three together, 13. And some of you are thinking, Tim, please make it stop. Just make it stop. But it didn't stop. The halftime score was 10 to three. And then the number of plays on Kansas City's winning drive, 13. A mom texted me after my last sermon and said that her girl said to her, I never knew Pastor Frick was such a Swifty. He totally gets it. And I honestly don't know what it is that I get, but evidently I get it. The question is, do I care about Travis, Kelsey, and Taylor Swift? Of course not. But it raises a more Linton question, and that is, what is it that we care about truly? What do I care about? What do you care about? What is it that our heart runs to and attaches? Where is our life going right now? What do each of us wrongly care too much about? or wrongly care too little about? And how does that inappropriate care, that that which is inappropriately inordinate or inappropriately impoverished, what does that do to our relationship with God? And how does it do damage to ourselves and to others? Those are Lenten questions. T.S. Eliot penned a poem in 1930 about Lent entitled Ash Wednesday. And really it's about becoming a Christian and moving from the secular wasteland of despair to the beginnings of faith. And critics eviscerated him for it. They despised him for this poem because he had been their champion. His previous poem was The Wasteland, which I'm sure probably 
most of us read at some point in our education. It's a poem that depicts the world as the secular elites and the academics post-World War I saw it, which is a world without God and a world without the possibility of real community or true peace, a world of chaos only and of continuing unabated despair. They loved Eliot's wasteland despair. They delighted in his lack of caring. But then he wrote Ash Wednesday, and there's one line that repeats the beginning and the end, and it's this line, teach us to care. Teach us to care again about the world. Teach us again to care about others. Teach us to care and not to care. To not care about anything in this world so much that it, it hinders or it dampens our ultimate care for you. Teach us to care and not to care. And I wonder what if we were to make that our Lenten prayer this season? What would it do for us and to us? And also, as we begin Lent, the first passage that we come to, that the lectionary brings us to, is Noah's Ark. And I think we should wonder why. Why the Bible's best-known children's story is the Old Testament passage that begins Lent. And so three points this morning to answer that question and hopefully to teach us to care and not to care. Number one, our intentions. Number two, God's right. And number three, God's heart. First of all, our intentions. There are five Sundays in Lent before Palm Sunday. So there are also three lectionary cycles. Year A, B, and C were in B. And they rotate in order year after year. So there are 15 selected Old Testament passages that would repeatedly be set before any church year after year after year if that church didn't deviate from the lectionary in any way. That's not what we do. We kind of jump in and out. But... If we were to follow it exactly, we would see these 15 passages from the Old Testament time and time again. And we would notice that not only that they sweep through the entire Old Testament, but they are also all mountaintop passages. Meaning this, as one commentator put it, they express the inmost depths, but also the the uttermost heights of the faith and the experience of Israel. And that breadth of experience from the deepest, darkest pits and the most crushing pains and losses that we all know in this life, but also lifting people up to unimaginable heights of the intercessions of God's grace to change every aspect of our life. That's what we need. We need to see that full breadth of experience as portrayed here and in other passages. Some of you hear these words of verse five, which are the intention of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continually. You hear that and you think, I know that heart because I've experienced that heart. You know that it's true, but you also know what it's like because of something that someone has done to you. Potentially a spouse who promised lifelong faithfulness, but has turned into an utterly unrecognizable person, a person who's angry and mean and bitter and spiteful. Maybe it's not a spouse. Maybe it's someone else, a business partner who's cheated you or someone else who's stolen from you or someone has lied to you, someone close to you, or someone's physically harmed you, even sexually abused you, maybe. And maybe they never took any responsibility for it. Maybe it seems as though right now that they've gotten away with it. Maybe they even tried to turn the tables on you and make you out to be the one who was primarily wrong, and they themselves the victim. Or maybe it is you who is the one who is primarily responsible for the brokenness in your life and around you, and all of the consequences now unfolding. Or maybe those consequences aren't unfolding yet because you're still lying and you're good at hiding. And you think no one really knows. 
And this passage would say, okay, no one knows except God. Because verse five doesn't say the actions and the words of our outward life were only evil continually, but every intention or motive, even those not fully understood by the person, every intention or motive of the thoughts of the heart. That's all internal. It's things of the the will and the mind and the heart, unseen things, secret things, starting point things, things that produce all of the outward aspects of our life, the words and the actions that we take. That is where Genesis 6 leads us because that's where God looks. It's his chief concern. And I've debated whether or not to say anything about this, but I've had so many conversations about it this week that I think that it's appropriate. And that is everything that's unfolding at the Austin Stone Community Church here in our city, which is a great church planted about the same time All Saints was. And I imagine that most of you know of what's unfolding there, but if you don't, it's sadly nothing new or novel. Their lead worship pastor, who's been there for a long time, maybe since the beginning, he was fired a little over a week ago for sexual misconduct done in person and also over text with multiple men, including allegedly a minor, beginning as early as 2011. And I've had many conversations because some of you worship there before coming to All Saints. It's devastating to you and to many of your friends who are still there and beyond devastating, I would imagine, for his closest friends, his wife, his children. But it's a Genesis 6 scenario, And it's evidence that Genesis 6, as it describes us and our world, is true. That this is as low and as deep and as dark as we can go. And this is what the Bible describes in us and also secret for so long, but not and never secret before God. And so let me offer you one simple but essential Genesis 6 warning. And that is everything that begins in the heart, everything is eventually acted out in our lives and everything done in secret will eventually be known by all. And that's not just true here. It's true of all the scriptures. Galatians 6, 7 says something similar, but even more explicit. It says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. The one who sows to the sinful flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And so examine the intentions of your heart this Lent. It's what this season in particular is especially for. And so those are our intentions, but point two, God's right. What is it that God does with the the secret intentions of our heart that apart from him and left to ourselves, invariably, inevitably become only evil continually? In other words, what does God do with sin? Well, here the scriptures elsewhere say that he judges it. This story, the Bible's best known children's story, it's ironically a story of judgment. I don't know if we realize that, but uh, it begins with a divine decision to wipe out the human race. And so any engagement with this passage, any understanding of this passage from here on out hinges upon whether or not we think God has the right to do that. And if we don't think that he has the right, or if we don't think that that's representative of God, what we'll do with the story is we'll make it into a cute little story about animals that we paint the, the walls of our children's hall with, which so many churches do, which is kind of weird because it's a story of judgment. But notice especially what elicits God's judgment. What does verse 11 say? That is especially corrupted, that's the language, or contaminated God's good creation. What does it say? Violence. Verse 13 goes on to make it even more explicit that violence is what brings about the flood. So here's what I want for you to consider, what us to consider. And that is, if you, if we don't believe in divine judgment and its reality and its necessity, If we don't believe that God 
is one who judges and has the right to judge, then we've got a major problem with human violence. Human violence wins without divine judgment. And I learned this from Tim Keller and from other authors years ago, authors like Mirsav Wolf, who I'll quote in a minute. But Tim Keller, in various books and sermons, he's written that we have three problems with with violence if we don't believe in a God as the Bible portrays it. Number one, we, have an intellectual, we don't have an intellectual defense against the naturalness of violence. Number two, we don't have a cultural defense against the endlessness of violence. Number three, we don't have an emotional defense against the poisonness of the violence. So let me unpack those for just a minute. Number one, unless there is a God beyond this material world and beyond nature who created this world as a reflection of himself and imbued it with his own goodness and truth and beauty and created us as his image bearers in order to know objective and absolute truth and right and wrong, then we don't have an intellectual defense against the naturalness of violence because all we are then is just a collection of cells. We're just those who have evolved from lower life forms into what we are now. In other words, we're just biology with a little bit of sociology added on top. We're not any different from the animals and even viruses, both of which indiscriminately eat what is weaker. That is nature. And that makes, nat- that makes violence natural. Just the strong preying upon the, the weak and all we're left with is Nietzsche who said, there is no absolute right or wrong because there's no God. There's no absolute right and wrong, especially when it comes to violence. Because if there's any moral objection to violence, it's just the weak making a power grab for those who are stronger because the world is just a world of power. That's all we're left with. It's natural. And that, I think, is what we see playing out right now in so many places culturally, worldwide, places like Ukraine, places like Israel and the Gaza Strip. In those places, culturally, secondly, there's no cultural defense against the endlessness of violence. Mirsal Wolf especially taught me this. He's a Yale scholar from the Balkans, which is a pretty war-torn part of the world. And years ago, he wrote this book called Exclusion and Embrace, in which he sought to refute the very popular notion that it's a belief in God who does judge sin that leads to violence. In other words, if this is what God does, then we're just imitative of him and we're going to be violent people. And he said this, listen to this somewhat famous quote. He said, violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take up the sword. My thesis is the opposite of the popular notion. My thesis is that it's the practice of nonviolence that requires a belief in divine vengeance. To the person inclined to dismiss this, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone, which he had done. Among your listeners are people whose cities and villages have first been plundered, then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Soon you will discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds with God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, that thesis, that belief will invariably die. It's quite a quote, but do you hear what he's saying? Did you get it? What he's saying is that we will pick up the sword and be sucked into endless cycles of violence culturally unless we deeply believe that God will eventually do it. That someday every wrong, every evil, every very ounce of any sinful act, it will be taken into account. It will be punished by God. No one gets away with anything and he will do it. And he has the right to do it because this is his world. And we are people made in him, his image. He will do it. And we need him to do it because if 
he doesn't do it, then we will, and our violence will never be just. It will never be measured. It will never be merciful in any way, just as we see currently happening in so many places. And the reason that we see these cycles of violence in the world on a cultural scale is number three here, because without God, we don't personally or individually have any emotional defense against the poisonness of violence. And all of us know this. We've all experienced this, even if we've never lived in a place like Ukraine or Israel, the Gaza Strip, and most of us haven't. Because for every act of physical violence, there are countless acts of emotional violence everywhere, every day. Relationships are ruined, reputations are destroyed, self-images are wrecked. There was an article in the New York Magazine in December entitled, An American Girl in the Ozempic Age. Deals with the very difficult question about prescribing new drugs for weight loss to children. And it tells the story of Maggie Irvy, who's a teenager from Missouri, and she was obese as early as four or five years old. But then at age 15, she was prescribed a predecessor to Ozempic, and she quickly lost almost 100 pounds. And many of those cruel comments that she had known all of her life and the ridicule about being overweight, they stopped. She became a cheerleader. People began to tell her how pretty she was. Many of those who had assassinated her self-esteem for being overweight, they just stopped. They became her friends. But now, as Ozempic becomes more prevalent and well-known, the insults and the assaults, the emotional assaults, they have begun again. And so what is she supposed to do? What do any of us do when emotional and personal wrongs like this happen to us? Well, we get angry, and rightly so. But what happens if that just anger is left unchecked? What happens to it? We all know what happens to it. It becomes bitterness. It becomes hatred. It becomes this poison that, that ruins our soul, that twists our soul. Remember that linguistic connection that I oftentimes mention to you between the words wreath, wraith, and wrath? Remember the connection? What, what are all three of those? What do they have in common? They're all twisted. A wreath is vines or branches that are twisted. A wraith in mythology is this ghost that's so twisted up with the person or the place where a wrong occurred to him or her that, that they can't move on. And wrath is unchecked anger that will turn us into an emotional wraith, so twisted up that we are not well and we're just hollowed out inside. So how can we begin to become untwisted? Only, first of all, if we begin to believe that there is a judge who will take every wrong into account and deal with every ounce of evil ever done, there is a judge, he will do it, and it's not you, and it's not me. That is the emotional defense that we need. So do you have it? Do you believe that God is the judge and it's his right to judge, and someday he will? Only then, if you do, will you be able to begin to forgive and you'll be able to limit your anger and move on in your life from past wrongs to move on and begin new life. Final point here. What do we all ultimately need in order to deal with our own sin and the sin of the world around us, the violence of the world around us? Well, we need to see here what happens with God's heart. In verses four and five, the focus shifts. Verses four and five is the focus upon the necessity of judgment. But in verse six, things shift a little bit and the text begins to focus upon God and his response to the necessity of judgment. Notice this last phrase here in verse six. It says, it grieved him to his heart. 
So the pain for God was so great that at the beginning of the verse, it even says that he regretted making mankind in his image. So all of the past words and messages about the delight that he had in us and his good creation, calling us even as the pinnacle of his creation, very good. Remember six different times it says, and it was good, it was good, it was good. He finishes with us and the entire creation. And he says it was very good. All of that joy and that delight is outweighed by the grief he has of having to judge us. And that tells us so much about God. It tells us at least this, that though he didn't create us because he had to, because he he doesn't need us for his own joy or for his own purposes, he's perfectly and completely satisfied and self-sufficient within himself. Even though he didn't have to create us, once he did voluntarily create us, he bound up his heart with us inextricably. Even as we know that any heart of any parent is bound up inextricably with their child and their child's well-being. Anyone who's been a parent knows that parental pain is the deepest form of pain known to us because it's so analogous with what God experiences with us. That is how great his love is for us. That is how tightly he has bound himself to us. And if you doubt that, just do a quick Bible word search of this word grieved, and you'll come across Isaiah 54, 6 eventually, which says, for the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Same word, different pain though, but similar pain because the pain of being deserted and abandoned by a spouse is also some of the deepest pain that we can know as humans. That's this word, and that's what it says happens to God's heart because of us grieved. And so in his grief, what does he do? How does he resolve the conflict between the necessity of divine judgment on one side and his divine grief on the other? How does he resolve that? Well, here we learn that he calls Noah to build an ark. He chooses Noah. Verse eight says that Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's the Hebrew word for grace, undeserved gift. It says that about Noah before it says that he was blameless or righteous. He lived, that he walked with God. He lived a life in relationship with God. But first and foremost, it says he was graced. And God tells Noah here of his plan to to rescue the world. You see this word destroy in verse 13? Look there, you see it? In Hebrew, it's the same word that was translated corrupted in verse 11 and 12, three different times. And I understand why the translators use different words, but it would have been more helpful if they just would have used the word destroy all the way through. It would have been more clear to us, I think, of what God is saying to Noah, and that is this, that I'm going to destroy the destruction of the earth. I'm not going to destroy the earth. I'm not going to entirely destroy mankind as a whole. I'm going to destroy destruction. I'm going after the violence. I'm going after sin. In fact, I'm giving mankind a second chance. I'm saving the world right now in and through you, not ending it. And Noah believes God and he follows it. He builds this ark and the waters come and the very same waters that that crush and, and drown everyone else lift up those who are in the ark, the same waters. And here's the question, does it work? Does the flood work? If you know the rest of the story of of Noah, you know that it doesn't work. Because what does Noah do immediately after he gets out of the ark? You remember? He gets drunk and stumbles around nakedly and ruins his family. The only family in the world at that time. And so the human race is as wrecked and ruined after the flood as it was before because the Genesis 6 flood isn't God's solution to resolving that conflict between divine judgment and divine grief. 
It's not the solution, it's the pattern of the solution. And so what is the solution? And that solution unfolds throughout the scriptures because waters like the the flood continually come. There's lots of water stories and God always in them provides a way for his people who have experienced his grace and believed his word to find a way through those waters. So think of Moses as a baby. He's placed in a basket and he passes through the waters. Think of the, the people of Israel at the Exodus. The waters are parted for them to walk across on dry land. And then even think of Jonah and the whale, another children's story. It's all the same pattern. And it's never judgment but it's salvation through judgment. And it's not judgment on one side and salvation. It's not a little bit of judgment, a little bit. It's not half and half. It is always salvation through judgment. It's always the same waters that both pull down and also raise up. And so that's the pattern. And where does it point? What is the solution? And you know the answer. Anytime I ask a question like that, you know the answer. What is the solution? Jesus. Don't say it so quietly. The cross... Friends, as I often tell you, it's the ultimate flood. In Genesis 6, we see God grieved. We see his heart breaking. But on the cross, we see his heart broken, fully and complete. We see God, God the Son, God in the flesh, with his heart stopped. In Genesis 6, we see God beginning to suffer for our sin. In and on the cross, we see the final and ultimate suffering of God for sin. We see him fully and completely taking his own judgment for us. It's there at the cross where the necessity of divine judgment is reconciled with his divine grief over us because Jesus is judged and we are saved. He is pulled down and we are lifted up. That is the solution. And only that can destroy, only he and his cross can destroy the destruction of our sin and the violence as we know it, and do so from the inside out. It is God's favor, which Noah experienced. Or as Paul says in Romans 2, 4, it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. And not just the amending of outward actions, but a deeply changed heart with the very intentions of the thoughts of our heart, our motives, our desires, our needs deeply within us. And of course, yes, the cross is the means by which we're forgiven. Because Our punishment has been paid by Jesus on the cross. But beyond that, the display of his infinite love for you, when you see that with the eyes of faith, it can't not transform you. It can't not lift you high in every aspect of your life and change your life. And not only your motivations and your desires, but in your relationships and your thinking and how you feel and in every aspect to lift you up high above the earth, as this text says above everything, of all the waters of this troublesome world. And it's then and through that, seeing Jesus, that you can and begin to know what it is to care and not to care, to begin to care for others beyond yourself because God himself has cared more for you than himself. And to begin to care about the world again, the world in its entirety, because God has cared and cares more for the world than himself. Friends, the flood is the beginning of Lent because it shows us the depths and the heights, the the depths to which we all know that we can sink and have sunk, but the heights to which Jesus and his cross can lift us. So this Lent, get into the ark. Get more fully and completely into the ark of Jesus and his cross and do so by listening to God's word. That's what a Lent is especially designed to do with all of its disciplines and all of its practices to detach you from any and everything that will derail you or distract you from listening to God's word. So as Josh said on Ash Wednesday in his homily, take some things off. Good things maybe, but distracting things, 
or especially bad, broken, busted things, take them off and put some other things on, things that will help move you more fully into the ark of Jesus's cross, whatever that may be. Daily reading of the scripture, daily prayer, doing so with others in a small group, confiding, and, and this, this is brave, confiding or even confessing to a Christian friend all you need to tell someone or serving others in some way, something. Take off whatever needs to be washed away and put on what will help teach you, me, to care and not to care. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would pour out your spirit upon us that we might indeed listen and hear you in and through your word and truly begin to care and not to care, to love the things of this world as you would have for us to love them, but never more and above you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.